Welcome to the Yams and Yuka podcast, where we explore the fabric of Black identities through culture, food, art, life experiences, and more, sharing the stories of international creatives. I'm Heather. Hi, everyone. I'm Kamara, and we are your co-hosts. Welcome to our new listeners joining us today, and a special thank you to those of you who are returning to the table with us. We have a fantastic guest coming to the Yams and Yuka table today, but before they join us at the table, we will go into our appetizer for a bite-sized conversation for today's topic. So let's see what's on the menu. Welcome back. So today I thought it'd be great if we could talk about the topic of collective leadership and what that kind of means for you. And, you know, as my years have passed and being a leader, it's it's really something that you start off by by doing by yourself. And I don't know about you, but for me, it kind of took me a while to really embrace the sense of collective leadership, working with others to achieve mm. the goal. And it's interesting because for the Artistry Youth Dance show last week, for one of the pieces, it was called Together. And I used the proverb that I found that was that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together, which is mm-hmm. an African proverb. And I think that kind of sums up collective leadership quite well, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think? How How do we work together? How can we work together? in a leadership sense? Well, if we take, for example, what we know best is how do we work together? I found this to be one of, one of the best co-leadership relationships that I've had. Mm -hmm. There's like, when I think about it, there's really only two that I feel like, and sorry to anyone else who feels like they're in a great leadership (laughs) role with me. (laughs) That might sound bad. (laughs) Maybe we should edit that out. (laughs) You just gave shade over the podcast. I did. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But when I think about collective leadership, I really honestly think about two people. And it's my relationship with you and my working relationship with Mercy. And I've worked with both of you very, very well for quite some time. You're actually, if I think about all of the jobs and projects and things that I've worked on, the two of you have lasted the longest. Mm-hmm. And for me, I think what makes those relationships work well is that we stick to what we do best. Mm-hmm. There's open communication mm-hmm. and there's just a natural fit. You know, there's sometimes where you can be so eager to want to work with someone and it just doesn't fit. It doesn't, you know what I mean? There's there's clashes there based on personality, based on skill set, based on availability, based on vision. Mm-hmm. And it really is quite magical when you can come into leadership with other people. It's not impossible, but I think it does require a little magic. It requires humility from mm-hmm. from both people in a sense. Of, and not humility, because that feels like you have to kind of like diminish yourself but maybe more so vulnerability like a a bit of openness to like allow someone to come into your space and allow Mm -hmm. someone to come into your project or what you want to do and really be open yeah a bit of vulnerability a bit of openness to hear someone else and really work with someone else and when I think about collective leadership in that sense and what's worked successfully 
for you and I and for myself and Mercy, that's kind of what's at the center. A little bit of magic, some great skills, openness. Yeah. And just alignment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. You need that. And I think sometimes it can be a challenge, especially in the arts, because everything that you do is quite personal to you. Mm-hmm. you can get quite personal about what you're creating or what you're what you're leading so I've probably found that to be a challenge you know to be open like you said because you're like but this is this, this is, is my idea. <laughs> my idea that I've been working on forever you know yeah. you're telling me to do it a different way whereas I think in a more business sense they're more they're less emotional about it mm-hmm. and can embrace other people's expertise and other people's areas of leadership mm-hmm. yeah I, I think yeah that can be a challenge as well so for me being a leader like you said it is allowing people to be able to use their strengths mm-hmm. to be able to use their strengths and giving people the space to thrive by using their strengths and not trying to control every area and every situation and um, taking on board other people's ideas, thoughts and opinions. I think that's what it really means to be a leader, giving people the tools to thrive, to mm-hmm. work their best, work mm-hmm. their very best. How about you? What do you think it means to be a leader? Um, for me is about, well, being an example, but also listening and being adaptable Mm -hmm. to whoever you're leading or whatever environment you're in um, when you're in leadership because one size doesn't fit all so one the way you would approach leading a certain group or within a certain setting doesn't really work everywhere you have to be adaptable Mm -hmm. you have to be able to make decisions for sure I think someone who has a hard time making decisions can't really be the best leader. And you also have to be able to, again, like you said, allow space, be able to delegate or allow space for people to really step up. And if they can do something better than you, really allowing them to do that Mm -hmm. and making space for that not in a begrudging way, but in a very encouraging way. And it's also like leaders build other leaders. That's Mm -hmm. kind of how I view it is that if there's, if you're a leader and no one comes from under you as a leader, then was it leadership or dictatorship? Mm -hmm. Uh, Question marks, (laughs) you know, it should be a breeding ground for, for other people to really come into whatever their expertise is and really shine through. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I think if I if I bring it down back to the core of it is leadership is about empowering others mm-hmm. to really step into their own. Yeah, absolutely. I I agree with that. And do you think that there are a lot of expectations or there are too many expectations for a leader, especially especially, I guess, considering the current climate and we've just had so much to do to manage with mm-hmm. COVID and everything that's come with it, we've kind of had to be a new version of a leader that never existed before, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. because what has happened over the last 18 months has never happened before. Obviously, there are different situations you've had to problem solve and things like that, but, you know, it's it's just on a different, (laughs) on a different plane. Yeah. Yeah, I'll say a a different plane because it's just... (laughs) It's not in this world. It's not in this atmosphere. (laughs) So I know I've found it a challenge, but where I have managed to succeed is, again, 
using the resources of others, using Mm -hmm. the skills of others and not trying to do it all myself. So do you think, as I said before, taking it back, do you think there are too many expectations for leaders? I think there definitely can be at times. You know, it it can be an instance where it's like the blind leading the blind. If we all don't know what's going on, Mm -hmm. you can't really expect much of a leader to really do more than what they are capable of or to do more of than what they have the knowledge to do. Mm-hmm. Have I ever found myself being expected of too much? No, look, fortunately I've not. I've not been in a situation of leadership where I feel like there's been too many expectations. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that means I'm not in challenging positions. I don't think so, but I think maybe it comes with also like where people have expectations might be where there's not clear communication, you Mm -hmm. know? So when you're in a leadership position, if you're communicating clearly, like this is what I know, this is what I can do. And you're moving with confidence and you admit when you don't know something, Mm -hmm. I think it doesn't make a lot of room for people to have unwarranted expectations of you as a leader. If you're, you're communicating Mm -hmm. with those that you're leading. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's important to say when you don't know something, when something's beyond your capabilities, just to be honest, transparent. That is an important quality of a leader Yeah, to be honest and open and to really say when there's something that is not capable, you're not capable of doing, uh, setting realistic expectations for others, something that you don't know when you don't know information about something. Mm -hmm. I remember years ago, I would always, I would always try and act like I knew everything when people ask me I was Mm -hmm. I kind of felt embarrassed to not know something right and I remember somebody said to me they said it's okay to say I don't know and I was Mm -hmm. like oh wow okay (laughs) yeah 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 I get Um, that I've only gotten comfortable recently with saying I don't know I actually now say I don't know proudly because that makes me feel like okay I have something else to learn and I'm not reaching a plateau or like a ceiling do you know what I mean like if Mm -hmm. I I feel like it's actually a a good success indicator if I'm in a space where like I need to do more learning or I need Mm -hmm. to do more research because that means I haven't outgrown the space yeah well I think I don't know but I'll find out is a good yeah a good one because that still acknowledges that you don't know because we don't know everything but Mm -hmm. like you said you're still willing to learn and to find out what the response is or what what the solution is or whatever it is the yeah. person is asking you for. Exactly. And so I guess the last thing we can kind of talk about is like, you know, before you got to a place of being open and receptive to being within a collective leadership, you know, for listeners out there who are kind of at that place where they're, you know, just trekking along by by themselves, what would you say is like the point where you're like, okay, I need to ask for help in in creating this? And like, how do you do that? It's a challenge. It's something that I'm still learning how to ask for help. Mm-hmm. But I think wherever possible, you need to ask for help. If this, especially mm-hmm. if there's something that you don't know, for example, like we were just speaking about, um, even if it is something that you do know, you literally don't it's not physically possible to do every task yourself. So Mm -hmm. I think you always need to ask for help every step of the way and think about maybe kind of break it down into different tasks, maybe not ask for help for everything, but think about what are the things that I could really do with support with? What are the things that are not my strengths? Start, Mm. Start there. So maybe think about, first of all, 
your strengths and your weaknesses and and start there by asking mm-hmm. for help for the things that are not your strengths. I think that's a very good place to start. And then it gets you into the habit um, and it gets you used to having people for support, like you said, about delegating, working with others, communicating, all those things that you mentioned. So, yes, yeah, so I think that's a good place to start. And I think also we have a lot of resources and we know a lot of people that we don't think about. Mm-hmm. We already have access to a lot of resources, even people just starting out, if you're listening thinking who can I ask there's always someone even if it's Mm. a family member a teacher there is somebody who has information that that could be of benefit to you so just start with your own circles that's what I would say Um, if you don't know where to go start with your own circles and see who has skills knowledge or resources that may that may um, be able to support what you're doing exactly yeah I was just thinking like it's all about your team like who who is that core Mm-hmm. support group who's that inner circle of what you know the vision you're trying to build or the project you're trying to develop it's like if you know that you physically can't do everything because you're only one person but also expertise wise like who do you need to be on that team mm-hmm. yeah and that's kind of where you'll build the strength to kind of to last as a leader in your field yeah definitely So I think those are some good thoughts, some good things we've discussed, some good things to leave with our listeners to ponder about. And I also think it's a great time to see what, uh, see who's coming to the table and what they have to say. Absolutely. So we're going to take a short break. And when we get back, we'll be ready for our main course. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It's time to introduce our guest for today. We are joined by Saradzai Marafu, and before she joins us, I will share some information about her. Saradzai Marafu is the founder and executive producer of film and theatre production company Eurus Films Limited. Eurus Films is a female-led film and theatre production company dedicated to innovative storytelling that showcases authentic representation. Saru is also the associate producer at Beyond the Canon Limited, business development and quality assurance director for Exodus Healthcare, crisis management, operational systems and compliance consultant, actor, producer, and a participant in the Stage Innovation Award-winning Artistic Directors of the Future Board Shadowing Program. Goodness. She is also an arts activist, passionate about inclusion, enamored with beautiful writing, and convinced that great stories enrich your life, adding texture and color. Welcome, Saru. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Yes, welcome. That's incredible. You do so many wonderful, wonderful things. And I'm excited to to learn more about that um, and all the different roles that you have within the film industry. But before we do that, kind of want to talk about your background. So you just shared with us you were born in Zimbabwe and you moved here to the UK when you were about um, 14, going on 15 years old. So can you share with us what's the significant memory growing up that shaped who you are today? Oh my goodness. I wouldn't say it's a memory per se, but honestly, I think I went to boarding school quite early. I I went to boarding school when I was seven years old, um, Mm. when I was still back home in Zimbabwe. And it's quite interesting how I guess it can always be received one way or the other. But for me, it was probably a game changer and a lifesaver. I think it kind of plays a very big part of who I am as a person, how I sort of 
am able to self-soothe and kind of just also be able to survive or at least understand what my voice is amongst many many voices uh but yeah I think mm -hmm. it definitely plays a very big part in who I am today nice and how would you say your Zimbabwean culture influences the choices that you make you know you talk about survival and, and self-soothing but how does that really play out throughout your life it's crazy because I mean, I'm very much an immigrant, you know, like, mm. <laughs> you know, when you, it's, it's not something that I can sort of separate from who I am. Mm. Uh, I've always kind of used the analogy of uh, like who you are and where you come from. It's so deep rooted within you that it, it can't even be extracted in any way or form. If mm -hmm. I was to move to China or if I was to move to India and wear a sari for the rest of my life, I would still be that Zimbabwean in a sari. And I think it, mm -hmm. it's just one of those things that it informs the moral compass I have within me, the culture that I grew up with, the values that I was taught, the, you know, even the sad moments or the things that weren't necessarily the greatest aspects of that culture are still also embedded in who I am. And I find that family is incredibly important to me because that's something that I was raised to believe is kind of unanimous with who you are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the way that we view each other and our responsibilities within our family uh, is also a big one. Like I, I grew up sort of supporting my family from a very, very young age because I got a, I started working when I was 14, wow. you know, and it was one of those things where you don't feel resentful. You don't feel like you're missing out. It's just one of those things that you do. You contribute, you help, you support, mm -hmm. you there for each other it does mean that you do get a sense of responsibility from a very very young age it does mean that your work ethic is above all else if anything it was also probably the reason why i got into the arts significantly later in life than most people i wouldn't even have been able to dream being in the arts when i was growing up it's not something you do the way that mm -hmm. i was raised you know like if you're like an artist what does that even mean i can just be my mom <laughs> <laughs> you know like honestly but then i keep thinking like my mom moved here like six months before i did and the funny thing is that when i first got into the arts it was because my mother suggested going to an acting class in order for me to have some kind of hobby because I was working all the time, you know, and, you know, when I think about that to say, you know, at age 30, my mom is the one who's saying, go do this. But then at age, you know, 13, if you had even mm -hmm. so much suggested it to your mother, she would have been like, oh, hell no, no child right. is going to be an actor. <laughs> 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 yeah, I think it definitely does inform the sort of person I am, but I'm not I'm not somebody who was always quite limited anyway. I mean, even when I was in Zimbabwe, I was somebody who was constantly trying to push, trying to adjust and trying to create and foster change. And mm. that is just something I brought with me rather than this sort of environment influencing me. Uh, it's just something that has always just been within me. Yeah, that's incredible. And it sounds like you became an activist from a very young age. You know, even though your art kind of made that flourish and over time as you grew as a leader, it's like you had that foundation, like you said, from the very beginning of creating change, of of giving back, of really being active in your in your community. So that's incredible. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, I think essentially, I think also because I was. I, I think I'm kind of supposed to be of service. Mm 
uh, mm. which is kind of crazy because you would think, but you're a child, but no, even as a child, you are of service. So you have something that is external to who you are that kind of cements your role within the world, within, you know, the greatest fear of everything else. And I think that was something that I kind of sat with from a very, very young age. And I think the more I've become more passionate about certain things or the more I educate myself on certain things or enlighten myself uh, with certain aspects and the more sort of obstacles and life issues I sort of come across, the more it fosters this ability or this need, inherent need within me to be of service. And I think I just didn't really ignore it after a certain point. It's kind of like, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> instinctual at this point. And sometimes a detriment because, you know, your self-care is also inc- incredibly important. And, you know, when you have been dedicated to other people for a very long time, it's very easy to forget that, you know, everything starts from within and you have to look after yourself first and then you'll be of better use to others. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, would you say you were chosen? <laughs> I would not say that because that would make my father and my mother feel very happy. I can see my mother going, I knew it. I knew it from the Exactly. Yeah, I and I don't want them to ever believe themselves to be that right. <laughs> Listen, they, pro- they prophesied they knew their child was going to be the one. <laughs> That's it. Actually, it's really kind of weird. My mom only loves my name now. But when I was growing up, my dad is the one who named me Sarazai. And my mom didn't really like it. Because Mm. um, opposite, like, I think when they were growing up when my mom and my dad were young there was a bar called Sarazai uh, <laughs> and opposite it there was another one called Farai which also means joy or to be happy and my mom was like oh hell no you're not naming my baby after a bar what happened at that bar so, <laughs> so they thought about it for a very long time actually but I think now she loves it <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah well it's definitely a perfect name I'm not even sure if we mentioned that your name means chosen so definitely to know that you are of service and that you've been carrying that out since you were 13 is is really something that is quite special and to to be able to have that chance to recognize that is something that not everybody has the chance to do Mm. you know so you mentioned that you feel that you are an immigrant still even though that you've been in the UK for some time now Mm -hmm. so where would you say home is where is home for you oh no home is definitely Zimbabwe home is definitely Zimbabwe I I know like I I have these conversations with people because I think at this point in my life I've been here longer than I was ever in Zimbabwe Mm -hmm. Uh, you know so and it kind of gets to that point where you sort of start asking yourself you know where do you actually belong in the world? And the way that um, we sort of ask ourselves within my family is more like, where do you want to grow old? Mm. And I'm very much a citizen of the world as well. Like I I love to travel. I I love experiencing cultures and visiting other places. But I've always wondered, like, would I actually want to grow old here? And I'm actually not sure about that, honestly. But I'm also not sure if I'd want to grow old in Zimbabwe. But Either way, like no matter how I look at it, Zimbabwe is always home. I can't really separate it from that sense of belonging that I feel when I am there and that sense of belonging when I talk about it. I feel like it's beyond where you live. 
Uh, it's not just about, you know, where the majority of your stuff is, <laughs> you know, or the majority of your family is. I think it's just about that place that you feel is essentially your beginning. Um, it's it's where everything about you stems from. And I think for me, that's definitely Zimbabwe. Um, and I don't know what England will have to do in order to steal that. <laughs> But I, it's not doing it so far. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but yeah, no, Zimbabwe is definitely home. Mm, that's really nice. Um, and what you said about that place where you feel your beginning is, that is just, yeah, that's really important. So thinking about your home then, we always think about food. We talk about food a lot here, Heather and I. So can you share with us what your favorite food from home is? And do you have an experience or special memory with that food? Ah, oh, what's really interesting about Zimbabwe is that we are actually quite bland in the way that we cook. Like mm -hmm. we're not like the other African countries where they have like all the chili and all the peppers and all the, we don't really have that. Like I, I think salt, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> Mad. A lot of our food, like I'm also an anomaly in that I don't eat meat. Right. Which is crazy if you ask any How does your family feel about that? Oh my goodness. And I haven't eaten it since I was eleven. Oh wow. So, oh wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Since I was eleven. I was um and it's it's sort of mad because whenever you did something really good, you know, like if you passed an exam, your grand my granddad would be like, Oh, we're gonna kill a cow or we're killing a goat and then everybody would come and then we'd all eat it and it'll just be like a whole sort of social thing. And barbecue, we call them brides. Um, mm. barbecues are pretty much the be all and end all of us. We, we barbecue everything. We like sausages, beef, meat, anything really. And it's mostly that it's served with sadza, which I, I guess is, it's like a maize meal that's sort of like cooked into a pulp, but it's quite solid. Oh, I don't know how to explain it. Uh, um, mm. maybe fufu. I think fufu might be yeah, similar. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. it's similar to fufu, but it's, it's made out of maize meal and it's white and we would have that. Literally just that and meat. <laughs> that would be a Zimbabwe meal. That is like a good day. Everybody is fine. I mean, sure, there could be some vegetables, but they'd be sauteed like greens and things like that, like mixed greens. But other than that, that's generally it. And we're a landlocked country, so seafood is not really our thing. So mm -hmm. when I gave up eating meat, it was like... <laughs> <laughs> no, but my mom my mom tried so hard like she she made um she made me a pescatarian and it was the hardest thing ever because you she had to go out of her way to get fish for me all the time and at the time I wouldn't have known much about fish because it's not something we came in contact with but uh she still posted she said if if I was to get kwashioka because of a protein deficiency how would she explain it to the neighbors <laughs> <laughs> but no sadza is pretty much it for me like uh sadza is it for me and i also really like fruits and i know this is like a really weird thing but we, like guavas we used to have mm. a tree when i was growing up mm. and when i first moved here i swear to god i don't know what was going on with like the early OOs, but I could not find a guava to save my life. You know, my mom would literally walk with me and frequent like all the stalls in West Croydon or Peckham or anywhere where you had black or brown people who mm -hmm. might serve market stall things. I mean, it's because it's not the tropics. There's no sun here. So yeah, really <laughs> they won't survive. <laughs> 
macaroni guava on these sides. I didn't expect them to have them, but honestly, now you can find them. But I think our our import export game was wasn't so good. <laughs> <laughs> you know but yeah like little things that you'd find back home like there's these things called matamba which is like um a sort of african orange it's kind of built in a hard shell and you crack it open and you sort of have seeds inside and all of these mm. things that just didn't exist here that were so so important to us because we had trees for just about everything mm. and uh, mm. on my grandma's farm and i i moved around a lot when i was little um, and I lived with so many different members of my family and I spent some time with my grandmother and that was one of the best things that I can possibly do was just my grandma would be working in the field somewhere and I would literally, she would literally just plop me in a corner there and just let me eat whatever I come across. <laughs> and it would be like wild cucumbers. It'll be just random things that just grew as we kind of, they're just there. A lot of my food is mostly that rather than cooked food. Well, it sounds delicious and very beautiful. I'm there with you. I don't eat meat either. But yeah, I I can imagine your family was surprised, you know, being from a culture where meat is so, so much embedded into celebration and and everyday, you know, everyday life. I'm sure that was like, ooh, who's this girl? (laughs) To this very day, I met a Zimbabwean recently. They came to my show and they were like, oh my God, Saru, I'm going to get Zimbabweans together and then we're going to have like a braai and everything. And then they were like, tell me you're not vegan. I was like, well, I'm not. Vegan, and then, but... and then you literally just like, like, and they were just like, wait, what? What does that mean? And it was like I had literally slapped him in the face <laughs> because we love our brides, we love our meat, and yeah, I'm definitely an anomaly when it comes to Zimbabweans. It's not right. I don't know which one would have been worse, vegetarian or an artist. <laughs> I think honestly, at the time, my mom had to work so hard to still make sure that I got all the nutrients I needed as a growing child. And they think meat is like a staple. You need it or you'll die. So I think she would have preferred an artist (laughs) at that time. Less work and fish is expensive. And we weren't really rich when I was growing up. We were poor. So it was like, how do you navigate that and still raise your child and Mm -hmm. still make sure that they eat well and you know Mm -hmm. that they have everything that they need and we saw so much of our food when we were growing up was natural food it wasn't Mm -hmm. like processed things so there was nothing really that could sort of replace what I lost with meat yeah but it's kind of mad thinking about it now like how horrible I must have been to her (laughs) and it wasn't like it was um you know, like a, one of those kind of random choices. It's because I went to an abattoir on one of our school field trips. Mm. And this is a terrible story. But when they killed the cow in the abattoir, like like to show us, and they stunned it in the head because it wasn't supposed to do anything. I think that's the first step or something. But mm. when they cut off its head, it actually stood up. And it walked and it walked and it walked and then it fell at my feet and I was covered in blood like everywhere. And it was like just squirting. It was like Carrie, you know, the movie Carrie. And I was just literally (laughs) in my hair everywhere. I had braids at the time and I had to end up screaming and crying and swallowing so much. It was like it was like a really terrible situation. That by the time when they to apologize, they offered us meat and I was like, no no thank you and I haven't eaten meat since so because it was such a horrific sort of no I don't want meat because of this 
I don't think my mom could do much about that. And I was so adamant and I was so sad. And, you know, so she tried her best to make it work. But if it had just been like, I don't want me because I don't want to. <laughs> I think she would have been like, oh, hell no. You're not leaving this house until you eat that cow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it was one of those things where she was faced with a situation that she couldn't really overcome either. And we all just made the best out of it because we don't get food preferences. Mm, yeah. like, you don't get to be lactose intolerant <laughs> you, don't get to, you don't get to be gluten free you eat what is put in front of you yeah, and you don't exactly. leave until you're done <laughs> so I think at the time just giving up meat and becoming a vegetarian was just like it literally was just I, I don't understand why this is happening to us but we'll work mm, you had no choice that was a, a very traumatic experience <laughs> Right, that would be this, that's a reasonable response so shifting the conversation a bit we'll come back to food we always do but we want to we want to talk about the artists in you as well can you tell us about the focus of your creative work and why you chose to center your work around it weirdly enough I mean I, I when I first got into the arts mm-hmm. I got in as an actor and got an agent was being sent for auditions and a lot of the times it was, I don't know, council estate girl number four, uh, you know, mm-hmm. prostitute like number three. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was just, and it was not really fulfilling because I just didn't understand where the complexities and the nuances with regards to the women that I was supposed to be portraying existed in. Um, mm. And it didn't make sense to me because I was raised by black women and they are some of the fiercest, most beautiful, most complex human beings I have ever met. And it didn't make sense to me to portray something that was two dimensional, stereotypical and lacking in all of this beauty and wonder that I had seen exhibited my whole life. You know, mm. so and then around about that time where I was just really kind of discontent and I didn't understand where these stories are, where these characters were, who was making the decisions that these are the things that get made. Uh, I met Samelia Hodge-Dalloway, who is um, or former. At the time, she was the sort of CEO of Autistic Directors of the Future. And Beyond the Canon didn't really exist at the time. And um, she was a Suzanne McLean, weirdly enough, who I'm working with at Theatre Peckham right now and Mm -hmm. they did this Suzanne stood up and she did this monologue and it was this beautiful complex black character and this Amelia was like how many plays by black people have can you name you know and how many do you think have been done in the past like 100 years and I'm like I don't know 50 but Mm -hmm. she was like no we have found over 400 Mm. and I was like I'm sorry, but where are those stories? (laughs) Where are they? Why is somebody keeping them away from me? And once we got to talking, I got introduced to her books. I found out about all of this incredible work. I found a monologue by Anders Lisgarden. Weirdly enough, he's a white man. Uh, But in it, he wrote a play called Black Jesus. And it's set in Zimbabwe uh, with the ZANU-PF. And it was a black girl who could have been me wasn't me but could have and it was the first time it ever that I read words that could have been mine but were not and Mm. it, it was very interesting to me how I had lived my entire life and not come across 
these sort of words and these sort of stories and these sort of things and I was just like oh no this is not okay uh and I'm a crisis manager by profession so, <laughs> so I was like this needs fixing <laughs> I got in touch with Samelia like wrote her an email saying I don't know what you're doing sis but I want a part of this and she very wonderfully agreed to meet me for lunch and by the time we were finishing lunch we were registering beyond the canon as a company and I was and I've never looked back since and I've literally just dedicated my life since then to trying to tell these stories that are hidden, lost, forget, forgotten, championing these writers that do this work that I believe to be truly important, but somehow just doesn't seem to have the space or the regard or, you know, held in the highest of esteem that it should be done so. And the more I kind of worked with these writers, the more I kind of worked with these directors, the more I started realizing that as much as people are seeing progress, it's superficial progress. It's progress that exists. It's surface-based. It's lipstick mm -hmm. on a pig. We're seeing black people in commercials. We're seeing black people in TV shows. We're thinking, yes, 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 the work is being done. But who are the people behind the scenes? So who is making mm -hmm. a TV show? I was looking at, I don't know whose Instagram I was, but one of the cast members on Bridgerton. And Bridgerton was hailed as a diversity baby. You know, like you've got all these black beautiful people that are in this cast doing this work and whatever and they had a picture of their crew and there was one black dude and mm. I was like how is there one black dude in the diversity baby like, like yeah. how does that even work that that's that's a lie. It's a beautiful, beautiful lie, but there's no real sustainable change that is existing here. There's nothing really that is fostering an inbended change. Um, and that really kind of really just cements the work that I do. I, I want change that exists on all platforms. I want people to be diverse in all rooms, not just the rooms that are more convenient or the rooms that are better viewed uh, or you know that people can see better um but yeah that that generally just informs me i just want everything to reflect the beauty and the complexity of the people around me the life that i live is vibrant and full of so many different cultures and so many different voices and so many different opinions and if art does not reflect that then as a society we are failing um because mm -hmm. art should be very much that because if artists are not going to be ahead and questioning and saying all the things that society or at least whoever is in power or whoever gets to keep them gates, <laughs> then, <laughs> then who, who's going to do it if it's not artists? I, it, it just doesn't make sense to me not to. So yeah. this is the hill I've decided to die on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've kind of touched on something else we wanted to to ask you about is like what are the key indicators of true change within the industry you know not just the sort of like you know tokenist gestures that you know are for like you said lipstick on a pig you know what what is that real change look like I've been thinking about this a great deal lately because of the work that I do because of the writers that I champion because I work so hard on trying to see how we're redefining classics, how our Winsomes and our Roy Williams and our Jackie Kays and, you know, uh, how the Mustafa Maturas, those people who have been writing beautiful, wonderful black work for 
decades and decades are not necessarily still existing basically as the legends that they are, you know, and I mean, globally, not just within our communities, how they are not accepted as staples. And I think there is some change in that for certain. But then I'm also conscientious of the fact that in the 80s, they were black theater companies, the 70s, 80s, there were so many black theater companies that existed that died out that no mm. longer exist now. How when you're in a room with people, like a whole bunch of women and they're talking about change, you've got that one voice who's like, well, we did this in the 70s too, you know, and how it all just keeps <laughs> coming around and around and it makes you mm -hmm. feel like, is this actually sustainable change or are we just in vogue right now? This is the trend. Mm -hmm. And and it, it has a very sort of sensationalized feeling uh, when it happens and it's happening at a rate that is, quite shocking because uh, you, you kind of have all of your sort of black colleagues and they all have work right now and everybody's really excited and it's like this is great this is wonderful but is this momentum or is this just a moment in time mm. you know and, and for me I think the worst thing that has ever happened to black people is the idea that they've given us an ambition to set our sights for which is a seat at the table Mm. And how is that the biggest dream that we can possibly have? A seat at the table. A seat at the table means that it's not your table. Uh, a seat at the table means that it's in a home that is not your home. You are a guest. You get to sit there. And mm -hmm. there's a one in, one out. How many people can sit at this table? <laughs> and who gets to decide all of those sort of elements? True change is never going to happen as long as that is the height of our ambition. Why is it that we want seats, but we do not want our own tables? Why is it that we do not want homes of our own and then we can invite people to our tables? How is it that we can invite people to have seats? Why is it the highest we have is to shatter a glass ceiling when instead of just saying, screw this house, let's build our own home and mm -hmm. let's make sure there are no glass ceilings anywhere near it. It's a break. You know? yeah. And it's, it's kind of that for me. I think for me, True change will only exist when I don't have to ask you for money in order for me to do my black work. I don't have to get authority and permission for me to, and sell you an idea that you don't quite get, but you think maybe mm -hmm. people will like, you know, as long as that is still happening. If there's anything that can be given to you, it can be taken away. And permission is the worst thing that's happening to us as a community as and I'm not just talking about black people I'm talking about Asians East Asians anybody who exists in a space that you are not necessarily the ones that get to set the systems get to set the goals the um, the agendas and you are literally having to play within a structure or infrastructure that is not of your design if you don't figure out a way to figure out how you can build an infrastructure of your own that can exist simultaneously to this one, you will forever be waiting for the other shoe to drop and for us in 30, 40, 50, 60 years time to be having exactly the same conversation, just a new wave of it. And that's, that's just disappointing to me. Mm -hmm. I'm also hoping though that, I mean, archiving is significantly better now. It's so much harder to erase um this information age has changed things significantly i'm not naive to that but then i do believe again that 
it'll only have momentum up to a certain point but things that are problematic always happen you know mm-hmm. like the biggest blockbusters like look at black panther and all the money it's made still disney still white owned still exactly. making all that money even if you think of rock in terms of black is king which is beyonce's thing and it had this beautiful wonderful wave of wonderful sort of i guess african adjacent culture because it's sort of like afrofuturism really um mm-hmm. and you've got that and you're saying yes beyonce champions us all yes still disney still white exactly. money you know and and all of those sort of things they have the look of what we want but they don't really have what we want and if you're somebody who doesn't really investigate unpack or even look at something beyond surface level this is enough for you my little girl gets to see black content my little girl gets to see beyonce as queen my little girl gets to think that she's a princess your little girl needs to think that she is what makes a universe rather than right. just as something that exists within this universe. My little girl should see herself in Disney. She'll see herself in the conglomerates that are creating these laws establishing what is culture, establishing what we consume on a global scale. That's what I want my little girl to see, not Beyoncé. Whoever right. is making Beyoncé do whatever Beyoncé is doing. That's what I think is change. Yeah, definitely. Wow. Yes. Yes, Saru. <laughs> that's that's all I'm going to say. Yes, we have our own tables, not want the seat at the table. When you hear it verbalized how you said it, it just makes so much sense, everything that you said. So, yeah, absolutely. I have to agree wholeheartedly with what you said. Beautiful words there. So you spoke about what inspired you to start Beyond the Canon. And can you tell us what was also the turning point for when you decided to start your own production company and what inspired U.S. films? Uh, Honestly, I think Beyond the Canon is theatrical-based, community-based. It does all of those sort of things. I just really like films. (laughs) (laughs) I just really like films. I I like them. I think they're fun. I think as a medium, they're quite interesting, honestly. And I also am very conscientious of just how limited you are in theater. Theater doesn't really have a lot of money. And, you know, in the risk of sounding like a capitalist, you need money to make things possible, <laughs> you know. And I, I think I just wanted to, to try and do something that I really enjoy or to try and do something that has better rewards so that I can keep doing it. I need something that will allow me to just keep going, keep building, keep trying. And I kind of just really enjoyed the factor of it. Then also, I mean, to be real, I kind of saw how uneven it is. There's this element that exists in film where it's so skills-based, especially creatively, like behind the scenes. It's so skills-based. You have cinematographers, uh, you have uh, gaffers, sound, all of these people, technical people that actually have skills that they need, equipment that a lot of the times if you're doing it on a sort of guerrilla wolf, <laughs> I mean independent cinema, <laughs> but feels guerrilla if you ask me, duct tape and desperation everywhere. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, when you're doing it at like an independent cinema level in the indie scene, 
a lot of the times if you're a cinematographer you gotta have good camera equipment that you come with or else people can't really hire you because the budget is limited so all of these people were having to have all of these things the more you work the more you practice the better you get at your craft the more jobs you get the better you get at your craft so I then started thinking okay so I met a black cinematographer who was doing everything they could to try and make money so that they can buy kits they weren't really getting jobs at the rate that they thought they would they weren't getting better they weren't getting better training they couldn't afford to really kind of harness their skill because they just weren't being given that platform for them to do the work you know and the thing is one of the things that people always talk about hiring you know the diversity hire you know that sort of oh we're hiring black people because we want black people i mean we want skilled black people nobody's gonna hire somebody who they don't believe is good for the job for their project that's going to cost them all the money they have you know you want skilled black people but then if you start thinking about it along the lines of if this is a job that you get better and better at the more work that you get the fact that you never get really hired because you're a black person means that you're gonna be left behind by your white counterparts that's just a fact and then what we're starting to foster is the idea that the better candidate is the white candidate and and, and that's that's wrong it's wrong in that it's separating based on opportunity and because of opportunity you will get better. You just will. The more you work, the more skill you have, the more money you earn, the more you can invest in your practice, in your craft. And therefore you are left behind if you're not able to sort of do that. I don't like that. So I wanted to create an even playing field. I wanted to create an opportunity for people to get better, for people to be able to be given opportunities that they may not necessarily get if they don't go to the right school or they don't have the sort of traditional pathways into the industry that are recognized by sort of the bigger organizations or trusted more by people who are making the films. Because as a producer, risk feels awful but i'm more along the lines of why is it risk why are we not trusting these practitioners to do the work why are we not giving them that chance to showcase what they can do uh, and then take it from there um essentially that's kind of what i wanted to do i just wanted to make dope ass films with incredible people mm -hmm. who are able to do stuff give people a platform for them to showcase what they're able to do and also just kind of say maybe this is best practice maybe this is the way we're supposed to do and we can talk about it as much as you like and you find that a lot in film you find mm -hmm. that you get to a point where you're in a space with somebody and they've made all of this wonderful content and they're a black practitioner and they're like yeah no i don't hire black people they just never do it for me and you're like oh wait but you're like our hero <laughs> you're the guy we look up to and we're saying yeah they're like nah nah and you're like you can't talk about wanting change if you're not going to put it into practical application you're just a liar and it's fraudulent really you're getting people's hopes up and you're utilizing elements of diversifying because nowadays it gets you funding and it gets you this but you're not really doing the work you're not invested in seeing it through you're a liar go away <laughs> it's, it's one of those sort of things and i don't know i just i wanted to do my part and i love film so mm. it just made sense to me to have euros film that's wonderful and you also mentioned before the meaning behind the name euros yeah <laughs> i 
thought it was something deep and meaningful, but um... (laughs) (laughs) it was not deep and meaningful. Yeah, Iris is literally Saru spelled backwards. I was like, okay, well, I'm registering my company like immediately. Let me just do this. I was on my phone with a friend of mine called Sasha Lewis and she was like, well, God, what are you going to name it? I'm like, ooh, should I find, like, some beautiful African, like, gorgeous, sort of yummy, whatever way of, like, whatever? I was like, nah, let's just call it Eurus. Like, <laughs> it's like our Oprah's got Harper Productions. It made sense. It was yes. easy, quainless. Like, I think we literally thought about it all of 15 minutes mm-hmm. <laughs> before, before. And it was being done whilst I was on the .gov website registering my name, my company and I was like well that's done great (laughs) (laughs) I weirdly enough uh, my logo I built it at an airport whilst I was waiting for the plane (laughs) my first piece of work uh, that I actually produced I wrote it because I thought it was stupid and funny and it's bored relationships I wrote really really fast I was like well I need something that I can mess up (laughs) so that we can do that and then from then on it was just kind of like okay, we're here now. Because I think essentially for me, the company is a vehicle. I think there's Mm -hmm. this sort of trap where you can overthink and overcomplicate something and Mm -hmm. then it never really actually gets off the ground. Yeah. Do it. It's literally what I say to anybody. Everybody says to me, oh, God, Saru, how did you like that? Dude, 15 quid and 10 minutes and you got a company. You know, (laughs) all you need is a platform for which you are going to try and do the work you've set yourself. And then Mm -hmm. you take it from there. Then you start investigating what matters to you. The name doesn't matter to me. The work matters to me. Yeah. You know, and what stories do I want to tell who do I want to champion you know and a lot of my stories honestly I put a lot of thought into that I've got the series called pieces that we filmed earlier this year it's a four film series and it's called pieces after this poet by it's a 13th century Persian poet called Rumi who said that love is the whole thing we are just pieces and I commissioned four different black writers to write their sort of incarnation of what they believe to be black love Uh, and that for me that investigation that unpacking of four incredibly different writers writing for a series that is not requiring you to have an agenda not requiring you to have an idea or trying to get you to fit a brief it's just about you are an artist what do you believe to be black love? What is the story you've always wanted to tell? It doesn't have to look like any of the other four pieces. In fact, I want them to be as individual as you people all are. And, you know, kind of really taking that and unpacking that. That, for me, I spent time on. I spent effort on. I invested so much of my soul, so much of my money. <laughs> and I, I, that, for me, is where the deepness and the profoundness should exist. Or else you're not doing it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, such important work and uh, such an important opportunity to tell those stories that are real and that are not directed by anybody else, you know? Yeah, it's it's actually really interesting because the way that they sort of approached it is just mad and different and quirky and just commercially, I have no idea if it's viable, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) My accountant. But I I mean, but it should be. Uh, I mean, one of the pieces is by Annie Domingo, who is literally an institution in black 
anything British anything and she wrote about an older woman and the idea that love is not necessarily between lovers but it's about that sort of a soulmate can just be another black woman that you identify with who brings you to life and makes you Mm. you know sort of feel and exist you know And, and it's deep and it's grounded and it's beautiful to look at and then you've got like Sido who is a black actress writer with cerebral palsy who wrote about the thirstiest thing I've ever seen so you know she's like it's so thirsty <laughs> you know so she so she said I wasn't even sure if we were just getting her like some beautiful black man that she could just lust over for an entirety <laughs> of a film but you know and then but then also it explores disability and sexuality the idea mm. that they don't get to 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 lust and it not be sensationalized and it not be like oh can, can we do that where is their camera mm-hmm. you know <laughs> mm-hmm. you know and, and you know and one of them is a really beautiful queer story which is like uh um queer people just going we're walking over here like no explanation it's not put into a heterosexual context to make heterosexual people understand it's just mm-hmm. a beautiful queer story and the other one is about Existing as an immigrant, existing in the diaspora, identifying who you are when the clear lines between home and where your home is and where you live are not as easily defined based on your upbringing. How Mm. do you find love when you are still trying to figure out where you place in the world, where you live, a place that you might necessarily find home doesn't call you a resident of its home (laughs) or where Mm. you might actually think is home when you're there you feel like a visitor because you don't speak the language you don't know the food you don't you know all of those sort of beautiful complexities that exist in being an immigrant or being a child of immigrants unpacking all of those elements I don't know anybody who these stories don't matter to but Mm. I know for certain that I would struggle very hard to get anybody else to make them Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would. Mm-hmm. I you'd have to sell them with uh an Idris Alba in them. You'd have to sell them, you know, with exactly. you know all of these stars. They're the only ones that can tell remotely anywhere near this. And we only have a few Idris Albers. How long do we have to take before we have many more of them? And mm-hmm. they're able to do that as well as we can. Yeah. It's the risk taking that you were talking about, like not trying to rely on the the blockbuster stars, but really going to the people who can tell the stories authentically and Mm -hmm. can really bring them to life instead of, you know, using the the one trick ponies that, you know, that kind of will sell the sell it to to the mainstream is really digging into those authentic experiences and bringing those forward. So what challenges, you talked about some of the challenges of having uh, skilled or the opportunities for, for Black creatives to be skilled and, and have those experiences in the industry. But what challenges have you faced as a Black female film executive and and what have you learned from those experiences? I think the biggest challenge is always going to be money, if I'm honest. Mm. It's going to be money. I always pay always without fail I might not be a Rockefeller so I can't pay Rockefeller rates but paying the people I work with is incredibly important uh, to my craft Uh, it's an investment in people not 
and one would argue to say well an opportunity is payment but i feel like that's something we hide behind in the mm-hmm. arts quite a lot to say oh but it'll give you exposure what the hell does that even mean that doesn't you know, pay the bills it, it does not pay the bills it's not <laughs> gonna put me in a tesco you know and get me like buying groceries it does nothing no. you know it's well wishing but it's wishes they honestly rarely ever translate into zeros in your bank account, Mm -hmm. you know, so you have to try and see how you're going to pay people and you're limited based on that. One of the things that I have found really, really challenging is that I don't have a traditional route into this work. Uh, I'm very fortunate in that I obviously, I I own a healthcare company. Mm. So I can do artistic things and know that my rent will be paid. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that no matter what happens with my filming my rent is paid I'm good you know and that's a privilege within in itself uh, which allows me to then think well, how best can I support others but I will never be able to do it at the scale that I want to do it at if I don't get investors and at the mm-hmm. end of the day you are just going to be that one black woman that people don't know one of the challenges i've been struggling with lately is whether i should work for somebody else like do i need to attach myself to a channel four thing or to a bbc thing or to a Mm. how do you question form how do you question pathways uh if you're constantly having to think to yourself should i dip into the traditional ways just so that I can get people to trust me better. But even then, is that even going to be easy? Because Mm. there's only a few of us that exist in those spaces anyway. And Mm -hmm. if there's like a one seat for a one person, you know, how do you do that? Like, how do you build an entire thing? And, And I'm all about building my own thing when you need to spend time in somebody else's thing somebody else's demeaning uh stereotypical tokenistic Mm -hmm. thing uh that will literally chip away at the soul in order for you to get to where you want to be which is essentially the hardest thing in the entire world because i really struggle with that but you do wonder i'm part of this sort of mentorship program and you know you've got these heavy waiters people black people that have been in production since like the 70s and they're like i mean we, we're nearly getting a high-end tv show that we can run ourselves and i'm like dude it took you like 40 50 60 years to get here like what yeah. does that mean and if you can't even get a bbc one drama that you are running uh or if you're like literally just at that stage now that you are being trusted with two million pound an episode type things you know, mm-hmm. like the crown is never going to be run by a black production team, like a black production company. Uh, right. How do we get that without doing 60, 70 years worth of, worth of whatever it is that we're trying to do on an indie side or playing their game and existing in their structures um, and slowly just chipping away at our souls? Like, exactly. like, I think navigating that sort of element of that is really, really hard. The ingenuity and the creativity required because you you got to be a hustler, man. You got to be a hustler. Mm-hmm. And not everybody wants to exist exist in such constant combat all the damn time which is why a lot of us just quit we get Mm -hmm. tired we get exhausted we deplete but yeah trying to not 
let that sort of weigh you down, I think is probably the biggest challenge in the entire world. Trying to understand. And I'm a hella ambitious girl. Like, hella. <laughs> I can't dream mediocre. My dreams are massive. They are vast. They are overreaching. They are limitless. And honestly, and they are ever expanding. Which means... For me to be content in my current situation would probably be the only way I could probably do it without constant combat. But that's just boring. (laughs) That's just boring. But it is a challenge, I have to say. Mm, Yeah, it's constant, nonstop, and you mentioned hustling. But thinking about that kind of working together, what does collective leadership mean to you and what makes a successful partnership? It all starts with trust, if I'm real. It all starts with trust. I don't believe I can do this alone. Mm -hmm. That's insane. And also probably narcissistic and delusional. This is what I would term a war. One that if we were to think about it electronically, it'll be nanites. We are each and every single one of us one nanite. (laughs) One singular nanite. Creating a space where everybody has a voice, where Mm -hmm. everybody's intentions and wishes and being on the same page with all of these elements, understanding what the goal is, what the objective is, taking that on board and moving it forward in numbers is the only way. I, I kid you not. There's just no other way. And also, it's not a movement if you're by yourself. It's just you going over there. you know. <laughs> and a lot of the times that I find within our community, and the reason it's two spaces where one person is like, oh, these people are like sellouts and we hate them and they're not doing this. And then the other side is like me, me, me. But we need to find that element that exists somewhere in between where we understand that you are not alone. Other voices are equally as relevant. Listening to them, listening to each other, building something within us and then spearing it forward is the way to go. For me, that's kind of what it is. I don't know if it's achievable without trust. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we can ever do anything without trust. I think the biggest enemy that we have is that we infer malicious intent. Uh, We infer that people are eventually going to let us down, whether we are able to articulate that or not. You know, it's kind of like when you read a text message and you can already tell somebody's mad at you and you're like, how can you tell they're mad at you? This could be written or read 16 different ways, but that's an inferred intent. Mm-hmm. Um, and we exist in that in the way that we work. So for me, I will always say that trust is the way to go about it. Listening to each other, having really sort of goals that supersedes personal gain and I don't understand because I I like personal gain I'm not like let's all gain things but we can do it collectively and we can do it in a way that lifts each other up but then also gives everybody a place to contribute I would Mm -hmm. say um what was the second part of that question sorry (laughs) what makes a successful partnership but I think you. Yeah, I think that. that's essentially it. I mean, mm-hmm. honestly, I don't. I have this sort of policy on my set 
projects or on anything that I'm working on is that I don't ever want anybody to feel like they are not valid or they are not heard or that -hmm. they don't have a space or a corner that they can fight for. No one project belongs to one person. It is ours. It is for Mm -hmm. us. It is. And when I say us, I also mean the end, the audience and the consumers, they need to fight for it too, because it is theirs. They need to feel included. They need to feel like they have that space of ownership that we all so desperately require in order for us to feel fulfilled and to feel like we are moving a narrative forward. And for me, that's really, really important. And, And I think if you are on set, nobody's more important than the other. Everybody just has different roles. And I'm not talking communism. <laughs> I'm not, not, not necessarily, but I am, I am talking with regards to contribution. Uh, everybody has whatever work or whatever element that they have worked and invested in becoming better at to sort of shush it away or not necessarily understand its validity is short-sighted. And unlikely to do anybody a service, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's so important, that equality, but everyone has their unique differences. We're not all the same. And nobody's created equally. Everybody has their own journey to get to where they go and to get to where we are, to get into the space. You traveled, you traveled, I traveled. We're here together and we will see what we can create as a unit. But your journey will inform you in certain ways as would mine and learning from a collective journey is more beneficial than just my own uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's what sometimes gets a little bit lost mm-hmm. yeah and definitely that trust as well which is something you have to learn over time to trust trust the process trust yourself trust other people I've actually got trust written on a bracelet that I wear because it's something that I have to remind myself so um yeah really important so knowing that what you've learned what advice would you give your younger self ah (laughs) I would probably say enjoy life more and I (laughs) honestly I think when I was young I were I've been working since I was 14 and I haven't really stopped Mm -hmm. ever I constantly I have multiple jobs at any one moment in time I've gotten to a point where I love it and I'm excited about the work that I do and I'm excited about the people that I meet I'm absolutely smitten with the process but younger Saru needs to just I don't know, be upside down somewhere, completely off her face. <laughs> like, like, seriously, like it's terrible advice, but I would say in the time that I have lived, I have become aware that you can live multiple lifetimes before you get to where you are right now. Mm-hmm. There is no real pressure to get it right the first time. Mm-hmm. Just be aware that you are living your life for the first time. You don't mm-hmm. know how to do life. Nobody does, you know, and to, to succeed, especially when I think of young people nowadays. I mean, young people are war vets, you know, like mm-hmm. when you think about the way social media is, the way people are making money at 15 and 16, YouTube and, you know, the way things are has completely changed the game and changed what success is. Somebody's literally watching TV in their room as we speak and making millions, you know, and, and just doing doing that all the things that we were taught we shouldn't do which means that you are starting to feel 
more useless, uh, more like a failure at an even younger age because you've got a 16-year-old who drives a freaking Lamborghini and they made that money themselves. It's not even like you can say, yeah, but their family's probably rich. You know, <laughs> you know, and like self-made is got a whole new meaning now. And mm. I think there's so much pressure to try and keep up with that, you know, but that's a lie. That is a massive lie. Life is so complicated and so beautiful and wonderful, disappointing, but uplifting. It's got all of these sort of beautiful curves. I would say to Saru, just go for it, mess it up and then start again. I mean, between 20 and 30, you could do several jobs. You can Mm -hmm. try until you find a fit that works. And then also just look after yourself. There's no alternative to health whether it's physical health or mental health, uh, whatever it is that you need to do, the tools that you need to put in your box so that you carry with them for the entirety of your life, whatever brings you the most joy, the most pleasure, whatever it is that you feel you can lean on and it will always be sturdy enough to hold you, definitely invest in those things, invest in unpacking that more than the external things. Yeah, very important. Very important, very good advice to younger Saru there. So <laughs> next lifetime we'll apply that. And look after yourself. Everything is good in hindsight. Everything is everything good. In hindsight. Is. Yes. Everything is. Everything is. But please tell us, um, please tell us what are you working on now? Oh, oh my God. I've got two more days of cake. Oh, mm. I'm so sad. But I'm still somehow relieved. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I don't want to do cake for the rest of my life. <laughs> At the moment, I've been producing a play called Cake at Theatre Peckham. It is written by Bavilia Bakilwa and it's directed by Malachi Sargent. And it is a beautiful, complex, queer, mother-daughter story that is just... When I first read it, when I was first given the play and I was asked if I wanted to produce it, I was just like, this dynamic this relationship it's so raw and so honest and I really really absolutely love it the story itself is set in accounts of a lot it's literally just these women these two women that are not necessarily given the tools for them to survive generational trauma the idea that you will raise a person who in turn raise a person and the trauma is transferable because one of them was not given the space that they required in society in order for them to feel like they they can cope. There's this line that I love in the story. The daughter says to her mother, she says, I don't know how to perform a love that you want. I don't know. I don't want to have to perform a love so that you don't hurt yourself. It is constant. Mm. Why am I the scaffolding in your body? Uh, and I literally, mm-hmm. and I literally was like, that that is a black woman. If I don't know anything, we don't know how to survive with the expectations that we are given. And you know, and when you don't, you almost feel as a failure because there's this sort of sustainability or endurability that is sort of fostered onto us as if we're able to cope with anything and everything, this idea of a strong black woman, you know, and no, we're not strong in all things. And you're not supposed to be strong in all things. Things test you, they trial you. 
But then we look to our children to hold us up when we are failing in times. Uh, and it's not that it's a failure. It's because life is hard. Uh, mm. It's Life is hard and not everybody has the opportunity to be able to cope as gracefully <laughs> as <laughs> we would like, you know. And when does a support system become an emotional crutch, becoming a chip away at somebody else's self-care and, you know, and so forth. And I just really enjoyed the unpacking of that and trying to understand that. And it's beautiful. The soundtrack's really amazing as well. Lots of Sade, because Sade's mm. a thing. <laughs> but yeah, it's playing until tomorrow. Tomorrow's the last day at Theatre Peckham, so. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then, I mean, I've got a whole bunch of films that are in post at the moment. I'm working towards a couple of feature films as well so they're in pre so yeah just keep doing me really uh, <laughs> uh all of the things i'm working on are essentially they always try to push form i think which i think i really like they question they investigate they unpack they try to take the theatrical application of us wanting to to do and to change and to all of those things and try and actually convert that into practical application into doing. Yeah. I don't know if we'll always succeed, but the attempts and the intention is always there. Excellent. Well, we look forward to seeing those films that are coming out soon. Before we round up, we do have a surprise question for you. Oh, we do this so with great. all our guests. <laughs> <laughs> so I told you earlier, we always come back to food and here we are. Yes. It's the name of our show. Which do you prefer, yams or yuca? And how do you like them cooked? Yams. Yes. Uh, yams is definitely it. Yams is the one. My favorite dish that my mom makes. It's really weird. Yam is so simple, but my mom has always made it as a breakfast food for me. Uh, mm -hmm. since, like it's my comfort food. Whenever everything sucks more, my mom will make this for me or when I need cheering up. She doesn't do much to it. I think she just boils the yam. Uh, <laughs> she boils the yam uh, and then she makes them with eggs. <laughs> like, uh, so it's like yam becomes like the bread or the toast. And then she like and has the egg on top. Like, egg, which is has beans and it has like... I don't know, tomatoes, and then it kind of goes on top of this yam. It's freaking delicious. I, 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 it's so good, and it always makes you feel like home. I absolutely love it. Yeah, definitely yams. And it's literally one of my favorite foods in the whole world. Nice. Oh, nice. Seriously. Good. Seriously. Good. So you answered our next question about what's the perfect meal, including those. So yams with eggs and beans. Yeah, yams, eggs, beans. But only the way my mom does it, because I've tried to make it myself and it never works out. <laughs> <laughs> never we can never make anything like how our mom makes well, it, I don't as mean, much I as we try. I also think she's proper hiding it, you know. There's something she puts in there that she won't tell me. And I, I don't know what it is, because it I just can't seem to get it just so. And I think she likes knowing that. So <laughs> You have to go back to her to get it. <laughs> yeah, I've tried. I've tried. I've tried. I feel like it's going to be one of those deathbed things. So she's like, I'm through. It was human. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
literally waiting for that. <laughs> well, I do hope you find out uh, before then. So, <laughs> I yes. also do. And maybe when I have a kid, maybe when I have children, my mom is going to be tell like, you. She'll now, tell yeah, you. like this yes. is the time. I'm like, yes, I think oh, God. So. If that's yes. the right, I'm never going to find out. <laughs> All right, then you might have to settle for an alternative, slightly adjusted uh, recipe. Very true. In the Saru version, the you're going to have to settle, settle with, yes, update it. So true. in the meantime, until you find out what that uh, is secret ingredient is, how can listeners learn more about you and your work? Ah, <laughs> I basically just online. Uh, my agent forced me to get social, so, so I'm on there. <laughs> I'm not much of a sharer, I'm really bad, but I am at Sarizai on on Instagram, at Sarizai Marufu on Twitter, and at Eurus Films on all the platforms, and www.eurusfilms.com if you want to go to our website, which I have not updated in ages, but don't judge me, it'll be updated and <laughs> y'all will be surprised because we've been busy uh, <laughs> but yeah like it, it's all there and uh, yeah uh, and also just to say as well like I I'm really kind of open to dialogue so if anybody has any questions or anything they want to ask with regards to producing film or you know just telling stories I'm always up for a conversation so at me on anything and dm me or whatever um, that's absolutely fine Excellent. Thank you so much. And we'll include those um, links to her socials and the website in the description box so you guys can connect with her. Thank you so much, Sarah Zai, for sharing your incredible journey with us. It's been absolutely inspiring. I have so many nice little savory and sweet moments. Can't wait to share with our listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, yes. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. And we really look forward to seeing that the work that you're creating and everything that is coming up with the US films and beyond the canon and everything else that you're associated with. So thank you for joining us today. We will speak to you again, hopefully again in the future. All right, everyone. So we're going to take a quick little break to digest everything Saru shared with us. And when we come back, it's time for dessert. We'll be right back. conversation with Saru that gave us a sweet sugar rush or the others that are more rich stick to the stomach and a bit more fulfilling so for me my sweet moment was when she's talking about uh the time that she became uh, a vegan or vegetarian not what caused it because that was quite traumatic (laughs) but um when she was talking about how her mom Um, despite the fact that it was so difficult to find fish where she was living in Zimbabwe because it was landlocked, that her mom did everything she could to make sure she still got as as many nutrients as she could and having as as full of a meal that she could. And for me, that was really sweet because it's an attest to like a mother's love, like regardless of what your, your child goes through or what your child needs or how different they might be from the norm, like a mom will always kind of go that extra mile for for their child to make sure they get the best. Um, so yeah, that was my sweet moment. What about for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a nice moment. My sweet moment was just something more simple. It was the name U.S. Films. And mm-hmm. we thought it was going to be something deep and meaningful. <laughs> Where How yeah. she came up with it. And she was like, no, it's just my name spelled backwards. So... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and if it works for Oprah and Harpo Productions, then it works. It works for me. So that was that was my sweet moment. And another name thing was about uh, the fact that the meaning of Saru's name was chosen. I thought that mm. was quite nice, and it seemed to play out in her life in the things yeah. that she did and how she felt that she was of service for others and her community. So that was my sweet moment. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I know, definitely thought I actually went, you know, researching what the film production company was about. I was like so sure that it had like some deeper like right. meaning, maybe a tie to culture, but no, you know, just just your name backwards, hey. Make it simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but sometimes I think that's good because a lot of times we really do overthink things, you know. Mm-hmm. Or we mm-hmm. make things more difficult for ourselves than they need to be when really there is a simple option that we could we could take to make our lives a bit easier. But sometimes we, we make our lives more difficult than it needs to be. So that yeah. was a good reminder of that, actually. Yeah, me. definitely. And what about your uh, savory moment? Um, so my savory moment when she was talking about having a seat at the table same oh okay (laughs) (laughs) because yeah we we constantly replay that and repeat that we need to get a seat at the table and as black creatives that you know that we make that our goal but you know what she said was that means it's not your table and I was like Mm -hmm. oh my gosh that's that's yeah they hit hit me in the chest (laughs) I was like dang why you so loud girl (laughs) I know that was like a that was a real personal attack there, that right? Time, wasn't it? Yeah. So she said it means it's not your table. I was like, wow, that is so true. Mm-hmm. And she then she went on to say, what I've written down is let's build our own home, where she doesn't have to ask for permission, and that the fact that she said permission is the worst thing that can happen to us. And again, I was like whoa <laughs> yeah hit you in the chest boy I would say this like I really love that when she brought up that thing about asking for permission because I've found that like in the different institutions where I've taught um a lot of the young black dancers they're always dancing as if they're asking for permission to be mm-hmm. as great as they definitely are yes yes and I'm always like you don't need my permission to perform mm-hmm. at your top level you don't yes. need that like mm-hmm. stop dancing and, and holding your body and holding yourself in a space where you feel like you're not supposed to be here because you are, you're meant to be here, especially in the space of like artistry you dance where the space is literally created for young black dancers. Like Mm -hmm. you don't need to dance. Like you're asking for permission. You just need to take up all the space. And so, yeah, that, that whole conversation about the seat at the table, it's not our table. We're just a guest and we're, we're aiming for such a low ceiling. And she said something that obviously resonated with me because I have a daughter where she said my little girl should see herself as the one creating the universe not just existing within it and that was mm-hmm. all part of that that conversation of like we don't need to be just the the character or the side character or the main character in existing in someone else's universe we should be creating our own mm-hmm. and really making the space for ourselves so yeah, that that all of that really was just like it was just coming at me left and right, like oh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> note taken, thank you. <laughs> I know, I know, but it was good. It was really good. It was valuable and just something that you know I will definitely take away, and I'm mm-hmm. sure our listeners will resonate with that as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's it for today. Uh, We'd like to thank you for listening. Please let us know what your sweet and savory moments were using the hashtag yams and yuca. 
That's right. Don't forget to tag us at Yams and Yuka on Twitter and at Yams and Yuka Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Alternatively, you can email us at Yams and Yuka Podcast at gmail.com. Again, our email is lonely, so please send us something a message, mm-hmm. what you like, what you don't like, what you, who you want to hear from. Again, the email is Yams and Yuka Podcast at gmail.com. Yes, we want to hear your thoughts on today's conversation and, like Heather said, get your emails because we really haven't received anything. So we're starting to take it a bit personally. But so to avoid that, let's keep the conversation going and feel free to share your stories as well to add to our Yams and Yuka Tapestry. And we will chat with you guys again next time. Bye. Bye.